Okay, we are ready to begin our service this evening. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. We have a few seconds this evening for spiritual preparation. Closing our eyes and bowing our heads, and then I'll open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your continued provision and blessing for us. We're thankful that uh, even though we are certainly flawed and, and continue to fail, that you are faithful. And as we study Israel and as we see them and their ebbs and flows of faithfulness, Father, we we know that that is simply a reflection of the individual believer and we pray that uh, we would uh, understand uh, the blessings and the provisions that you have for us and respond in uh, faithful, obedient, positive ways. And particularly now, as our nation is going through a very difficult transition, a transition between two different administrations, and we pray that um, that this would not be similar to maybe other nations that uh, have difficulty in doing so. But uh, in the past, we've done this successfully. We pray that that would be something that would be uh, achieved so that we might continue to carry on the ministries that you have for us, Father. We're certainly thankful for our military as we remember them on Armed Forces Day. Uh, We pray for their uh, effectiveness, the leadership that they receive. Uh, We pray that we would provide them with uh, the needed resources, uh, that those resources would be properly applied for uh, training equipment, um, deployments, and that um, the military would be used uh, effectively and the reasons for which it is truly to be used. We pray, Father, for your blessing now on our service. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Armed Forces Day, May 17, uh, was instituted in 1952. May 17th. 1952, and uh, the New York Times ran an article at the time reminding readers of Armed Forces Day, observing that we were to observe, it was observed that year while American troops were fighting in Korea. Uh, It said, this is the day on which we have the welcome opportunity to pay special tribute to the men and women who are in the service of their country all over the world. Armed Forces Day won't be a matter of parades and reception for 
uh, a good many of them, they will all be in the line of duty, and some of them may give their lives in that duty. Arms Force, Armed Forces Day, Armed, A-R-M-E-D, Armed Forces Day, is observed on the third Saturday in May. It's a day to salute soldiers in all branches of the military and remember that we have no peace, security, or freedom, no United States without them. So it's, I guess Armed Forces Day is this Saturday. It's not really today. I'm jumping the gun a little bit because the 17th, I think, was the first day. While Memorial Day honors America's war dead and Veterans Day honors those who have served in past times, Armed Forces Day recognizes those presently serving. The nation has observed this patriotic holiday since 1950. Okay, I'm catching myself up here. The military often sponsors parades, air shows, and tours of ships, planes, and bases on Armed Forces Day. The times continued. It is our most earnest hope that those who are in positions of peril, that those who have made exceptional sacrifices, yes, and those who are afflicted with plain drudgery and boredom, may somehow know that we hold them in exceptional esteem. Perhaps if we are a little more conscious of our debt, of honored affection, if they are, excuse me, if we are a little more conscious of our debt, of honored affection, they will be a little more aware of how much we cherish them. So, Armed Forces Day. Uh, one other item I have here before we begin is, um, I don't know how many people received the uh, the magazine uh, Acts and Facts that uh, ICR, the Institute for Creation Research, uh, publishes. Uh, one of my, they, they have many exceptional uh, writers and members. Uh, Jason Lyle is one of them. Jason Lyle, um, I'm going to say that he is, he's a, a, the director of physical sciences, uh, and he has a Ph.D. in astrophysics from the University of Colorado. And he generally addresses those um uh, topics regarding planets and space. Uh, one of the other authors and one of their uh, members that I, I like particularly is Dr. Galuza. Uh, he is a medical doctor. He is also a registered professional engineer. And he also served in the United States Air Force and was a flight surgeon for uh uh, the Air Force for many years. Um, he has his master's. Uh, he has a master's degree in public health from, from Harvard as well. And in the last two uh, issues, uh, April and now in May, he has written an article, two uh, two part article about junk DNA. And I don't know. I don't know if many of you have heard. That phrase, junk DNA, it became popularized uh, back in the, uh, I don't know if it was the 60s and 70s, as we began to learn more and more about DNA and genes and what became known as the genome. And um, I remember uh, when I was in, uh, I think I was in grade school, we had 
uh, one of our fellow students in the class um, really enjoyed science and he kind of enjoyed reading um, about uh, the human body and uh, he had read somewhere in an article that uh, a lot of the that what, what's I think is described as vestial organs such as uh, uh, adenoids, tonsils, uh, appendix, uh, little toes, and things like that, um, where uh, there was this um, speculation that they had previously been in uh, uh, the human being uh, much more effective, larger. Uh, but as evolution had progressed, well, they were no longer really needed, and so we just happened to be at that time during the evolutionary process where these organs are disappearing. Well, it wasn't long after that that they began to discover that uh, some of the things that they thought, some of the parts of our body that really weren't all that useful, were useful. And they realized they were doing... Uh, performing functions that previously we didn't think they were performing. Well, uh, when they first discovered and they did more work on uh, DNA, genes, and the genome, there were certain parts of the DNA that they, um, they could easily determine the function or maybe I shouldn't say easily, but they were able to determine the function. But there were other parts that seemed to be uh, not functional, or uh, maybe even uh, just uh, almost like waste material. And they described it as junk DNA, and depending upon who you read, uh, it could be uh, a higher percentage or a lower percentage of the DNA. Some were as high as uh, only about 20% was really effective and others was a little higher, maybe 50-50 was effective and the other was not. And therefore, that part that was considered to be non-functional was uh, described as junk DNA. And that terminology, junk DNA, has been part of the vocabulary for quite a few years. And it is now, you might uh, not be too surprised to know, that it's sort of fallen out of favor uh, because they have been discovering, as God allows us to discover these things, they're discovering that, Uh, Maybe this is not quite as much junk as we thought it was. And Dr. Galuza, in writing his articles, um, he alludes that he he uses the example, and we were talking about Cooperstown, but he uses the example of Casey at the bat. And this is just kind of a fun way to begin this. He says, the suspense is... Palpable as fans watching baseball slugger Casey at the plate prime to wallop a game-winning home run. And now the pitcher holds the ball. And now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. And then he says, a total whiff. So, 
There is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. Ernest Thayer's legendary 1988 baseball poem conveys the message of how overblown expectations bolstered by smug overconfidence can be dashed when the actual performance results in an enormous swing and a miss. Just like the mighty but futile force of Casey's blow, evolutionary literature gloated for over three decades about evidence evolutionists believed was a powerful confirmation of evolution. Their proof was a discovery that a large percentage of DNA, they called junk DNA, does not code for protein. And that's how they describe our genes and DNA. Since evolutionists believe that over long ages, organisms and their DNA are crafted by chaotic environments in which they struggle to survive, Evolutionists, evolutionists expect to see in evolution's wake many different types of useless genetic junk. They were so certain that most non-coding genetic material was junk DNA. Some said it was only function, its only functional ability was to embarrass creationists. Yet, Joyless Mudville was let down by Casey. And recently, there has been less joy in Evolutionville as the expectations of junk DNA have been exposed as overblown. Thoughtful research confirmed function for much of the diverse types of DNA mislabeled as junk. Scientific evidence shows the widely touted junk DNA argument, which evolutionists anticipated being a Darwinian home run, is really a blundering swing and a miss, another total whiff for their theory. And he goes on to describe some of their theories, uh, such as uh, Hackle's embryos. I don't know if anybody remembers Hackle's embryos. He looked at the embryos uh, as we were able to visualize embryos, and we've probably been able to do it for a while because they could probably open someone and catch the embryos at different stages. But they thought that the embryos in their different stages were was actually a reflection of the evolutionary development of mankind. So that at any time when you looked at an embryo, no matter how far along it was in its stage, you could pick out the um, the various forms of the of the human progress through evolution. I mean, it was. I remember reading that in a science book one time, and I thought this. Well, I don't even remember what I thought. I probably was just uh, stunned by it. But of course, that was proven to be um, complete. Uh, fantasy. And then he goes on and talks about other things, Piltdown Man and several others, uh, all of these things that were ongoing. But uh, he finishes in his, or he, in his second article, well, I know what I wanted from this specifically, was uh, a gentleman by the name geneticist Frank Collins 
was the director of the Human Genome Project and currently is the director of the National Institutes of Health, National Institutes of Health. Surprisingly, he once endorsed the concept of junk DNA. What did surprise many was the degree to which Collins publicly identified his work as fully compatible with belief in God's creative agency. So he picked up the deist idea and he said that, and he started a, a progress, an organization called Biolo, Biologos to promote evolutionary creationism. Biologos credits the diversity of life on earth to the God-ordained process of evolution. Theistic evolution is another description in which natural or creative heterozygosity, in other words, genetic diversity, is fractionated by a natural process. He said, even more compelling evidence for a common ancestor comes from the study of what are known as uh, ancient repetitive elements. This gets a little... uh, deep here, but he says mammalian genomes are littered with these, with roughly 45% of the human genome made up of such genetic flotsam and jetsam. So this guy at one time believed that much as 45% was junk DNA. It was uh, uh, genetic material that's just kind of floating around Uh, after it becomes useless and the destruction. Uh, He said that um, uh, he mocked creationists who claimed from an investigative standpoint that junk DNA, that the the junk DNA label was premature. Of course, he said, some might argue that these are actually functional elements placed here by a creator for a good reason. And our discounting them as junk DNA just betrays our current level of ignorance. That was in early 2000. Would you like to hear what our friend, Mr. Collins, is now saying? His statement proved ironically predictive. By 2015, Collins admitted that a level of ignorance had indeed betrayed the consensus of evolutionists. Numerous discoveries showed functions for DNA once discounted as junk. One science reporter noted, in January 2015, Frank Collins, the current director of the National Institutes of Health, made a comment that revealed just how far the consensus has moved. At a health care conference in San Francisco, an audience member asked him about junk DNA. His response was, we don't use that term anymore. We don't use that term anymore. It was pretty much a case of hubris to imagine that we could dispense with any part of the genome as if we knew enough to say it wasn't functional. Most of the DNA that scientists once thought were just taking up space in the genome, Collins said, turns out to be doing stuff. 
So, we are living in a world that is full of hubris, arrogance, thinking that uh, it knows more than what it really sees in the world around us. Um, And because these evolutionists know what they want to see, that's what they see. And it's not what they actually are observing. And these uh, um, organizations like Answers in Genesis and Institute for Creation Research and several others, uh, they're just continuing to do their work. And as they do their work, a lot like Dr. Stephen Austin, as they continue to do their work and publish their findings, although a lot of the premier um, publications will not publish them because these uh, Christians who are doing this scientific work, uh, their findings don't line up with what the evolutionists believe and therefore they don't even want to, want them to be they don't want to even entertain it and one of the reasons they don't is because they don't have answers they don't have answers for for what these uh, Christian organizations are discovering but they are having an effect and here we see someone who 15 20 years ago laughed at the creationists is now agreeing with them and saying well it was hubris for us to to find what we were trying to observe. Interesting. All right, we're in uh, Zechariah. Zechariah, chapter 7. And we have uh, a very interesting passage in front of us. And that's part of our... Uh, the messages that we are studying. And let me get us started. This, this is where I wanted to, what I wanted to show you last week, and uh, I just didn't have it on, the, on a slide. But as we begin uh, chapter 7 in Zechariah, what we, what we see is four explanatory messages to an answer. And the question is asked, in Zechariah 7.3. And what we saw last week was the message of rebuke, which was found in Zechariah 7.4-7. The answer is not there because the problem that we see is that Israel uh, finds themselves essentially in the same position they had, they were in prior to the Babylonian captivity. So, therefore, our first uh, message of these four is the message of rebuke, Zechariah seven four through seven. The second message is the message of repentance, Zechariah seven nine through four, and that's what we're studying today. We also have the message of restoration in Zechariah eight one through seventeen. And then the message of rejoicing in Zechariah 8, 18-23. Last week we uh, read Zechariah 7, 
worked our way through verses 1 down through verse 7. We're ready to begin verse 8. Let me, it's, uh, we need the question in the background here in order to understand what we're doing in the message of repentance. Verse 1. Now, in the fourth year of Darius, and this is 518 BC, It came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, uh, Chislev, when the people sent, and this is Shar, the Hebrew word is Shar Eitzer, Shar Eitzer, with Regem Melech and his men from Bethel. My new King James says to the house of God, but it really should read from Bethel. To seek, could say to pray, but it's really to seek favor before the Lord. And how are they going to do that? Verse 3 is the question. And to ask the priests who were in the house of God, in the house of the Lord of hosts, and the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? Well, they came down to ask the question, it says, of the priests and the prophets. But... The Lord speaks through the prophets. And the prophet right now, who is uh, manning, we could say, the office of prophet in Israel, is Zechariah. So Zechariah is going to answer this question as the Lord speaks to him. And that's what we see in verse 4. And this is the message of rebuke. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Zechariah, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, this is the prophet speaking to the people and to the priests, and remember Joshua is the head of these priests, uh, saying to, uh, to, all, uh, to all the people of the land of the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me. Verse 6. And of course, the answer there uh, implied is, no, you didn't. No, you weren't. Verse 6. When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Is implied. Verse 7. Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Israel and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous, and the south and the Gave and the lowland were inhabited. The rebuke here is that you are now fasting uh, for reasons. One is for the destruction of Jerusalem, and the other one is for the assassination of the last governor, Gedaliah. That in the fifth and the seventh months, that's what they were doing. Uh, fasting for them. But this was a self-imposed, these were self-imposed fasts. Uh, And uh, no one directed this. And someone said, well, are you sure we couldn't find that in the law? Well, the law, of course, was given long before this, long before the Babylonian captivity, and there would have been, been no fifth or seventh month. So we know that this came up afterwards. Now, Uh, just a very quick review I'm going to walk through this very quickly this is what we saw last time 
we saw that there was only one required fast in the Mosaic Law, and that was the fast for the Day of Atonement. Secondly, we saw that the fifth month fast was for the anniversary of the destruction of the Temple. We, saw, we know that because it happened in 2 Kings 25.8. We looked at that last time. We went right there. It was the fifth month. Records it for us. Thirdly, the seventh month fast was for the anniversary of the assassination of Gedaliah, the last governor of Judah. And it gives us that in 2 Kings 25.25. The 70 months that are mentioned here was the time of the exile. And that was stated in Jeremiah 29.10. We also can find it in Jeremiah 25. That was the period of discipline for Israel for ignoring the sabbatical year every seventh year. We also saw that Israel had ignored the sabbatical year for about 490 years. That's why they were out for those that 490, uh, 490 years, for the 70 years. The Lord recouped them while they were in captivity. The fasting, verse point six here, addressed was not required by God, but was self-imposed by the exiles in Babylon. And we found evidence of that in Psalm 137. Well, so they were doing this, and it's not that it couldn't have been effective and it couldn't have been sincere, but the Lord, through Zechariah, says, I know that it wasn't. We also saw that in verses 5 and 6, that Z's answer to the actual question does not arrive until we see the last part of uh, chapter 8. Secondly, his immediate answer rebuked the people for hypocritical ritual for yourselves. They were doing it for themselves. Thirdly, God had previously warned Israel about ritual without reality. We've studied this and we looked at a couple passages, I think, last week. Fourth, the Mosaic Law required sacrifices, but they were to be observed with proper motivation and spiritual attitude. Fifth, the rebuke was against empty rituals devoid of spiritual reality and value. And then we saw this as well. Um, Zechariah implies, first of all, in point seven, verse 7, our last verse that we studied last time, implies with the rhetorical question of verse 6 that the Jews were disingenuous in their fasting rituals. Secondly, Z's comment in verse 7 implies that the Jews, prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, were guilty of the same dishonest worship. He says, shouldn't you have been asking these questions, or shouldn't you have been doing this, uh, when the Lord was prospering the nation? Thirdly, the former prophets had warned the Jews regarding their worship of ritual without reality. Fourth, Zechariah states that it would have been better for the Jews prior to the Babylonian captivity if they had listened to the same rebuke rebuke by the former uh, prophets. And then fifth, the land at that time was populated and prosperous, but now it is uninhabited and it's unproductive. Not and unproductive, and unproductive. Okay. Uh, I think I... Now, in verses beginning in verse 8. Verse 8 says, and now we start our second message. And this second message is the message of repentance. And it's verses 8 through 14. Uh, In this second message, God also is going to demand true righteousness, not merely 
outward religion. And that was the problem for Israel. Israel was very proud of their rituals, but they performed them without reality. And the prophet's words we're going to read in this section, while referring to the pre-exilic community, were also implicitly relevant for those of the post-exilic era who had returned because they were doing the same thing. They were falling back into the same situation. So verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice, show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother, Verse 10, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. Verse 11, but they, and who is they? They is, they are, but the the people that are identified here is the pre-exilic Judah. Judea, the nation, prior to Nebuchadnezzar coming and destroying the city and the temple. So, But they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Thus, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. This, again, identifies what happened to Israel came from the Lord. Verse 13, Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed and they would not hear, so they called out and I would not listen. I'm going to read this again because there's great... uh, Symmetry here in this passage, but we miss it because our English translators um, want to use different words or different translations for the same words. Verse 13 says, Therefore it happened that just as he called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear. Those Two words, called and heard, call, call and hear or heard, are used both times. But unfortunately, we have, you know, uh, mess, missed that, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 14. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations, which they had not known. In other words, they had not known those other nations. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned, for they, these are the post-exilic Jews, Israel, for they made the, the pleasant land desolate. Okay. Now, what do we have here? As we look at verse 8 and 9, verse 9 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. And Zechariah keeps using this so that we understand that Zechariah is saying, this is what the Lord is saying. Listen to what the Lord is saying. And he keeps using the Lord of hosts. Execute, which is the word to judge. 
judge true. And I think the word there he's saying is that you need to have um, uh, proper justice. They are to adjudicate truthfully. Show mercy. The word there for show is actually the word to do. Do mercy, and that's the word chesed, which is covenant faithfulness. They are to demonstrate covenant faithfulness as God does to them, and compassion, everyone to his brother. Therefore, the prophet, during the last years of Judah's existence, who would be Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the prophet who is constantly... Uh, revealing God's message to the people and to the kings and uh, and those in the uh, dynasty, warned them about being obedient and following the truth. Jeremiah seven twenty eight. Uh, quickly turn back here to Jeremiah seven twenty eight. In Jeremiah seven twenty eight, here's Jeremiah. Jeremiah is telling them that they need. To be obedient. They need to follow the truth. Instead, Judah is going to seek their own way instead of God's way. In Jeremiah 7.28, Jeremiah, who is in Israel, remember Daniel and Ezekiel are not, but Jeremiah is there. He's right there until Jerusalem is destroyed. As a matter of fact, he's there after Jerusalem is destroyed. And he isn't taken to Egypt. He's captured and taken to Egypt when Gedaliah is assassinated. Verse 28, So you shall say to them, the Lord says, Say to the nation, This is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord, their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Therefore, here we are. Verse 10 in uh, Zechariah 7. Zechariah 7.10 says, Do not oppress. And the word here for press is the word for to do wrong or to extort. Do not extort the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan, the word here plan or think, evil in his heart against his brother. What do we have here? The fact is that the Jews were fasting in order to gain God's favor and blessing, but they had adopted a ritual fasting that was not required by God, and they were also doing it as a ritual, but they really were disingenuous. They were not sincere in what they were doing. What God did require, they did not obey. They didn't perform. So here we are. Let's look at these points for Zechariah 7, 9, and 10. Similar to the passage in Micah 6, 8, God states what He requires of His people. Micah. We studied Micah in the Noon Hour Bible class. It's just, just a couple pages back. Go back a couple books, and you'll find it right behind Nahum, Habakkuk, Nahum, and then Micah. And in Micah six eight, in Micah six eight, and this is pre-exilic. This is prior to the exile, prior to the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the final deportation. Micah six eight. Um, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good, 
And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly? Here we have it again. Uh, Zechariah repeats this when he says, Execute true justice. To love mercy. In other words, covenant faithfulness here. This mercy is chesed. It means kindness. You can also use the word compassion. And to walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're supposed to shuffle our feet when we walk? Uh, kind of rounded shoulders and our head down? No, it's a figure of speech. It means to be obedient. When it says to walk Humbly, it means to be obedient. Live an obedient life. Alright, back to uh, Zechariah 7, our second point here. God did not desire His people merely to practice religion, but to exhibit righteous attitudes and behavior. God doesn't want them to merely practice, go through the motions. We have a lot of people doing that today, going through the motions. But he wants them to exhibit proper attitudes and behavior. Um, In verse 9 and 10, if we were to say, God, what do you want us to do? We might think that we would read about the daily, weekly, monthly, yearly sacrifices, the annual feasts. But that's not what Zechariah says here. And the reason he doesn't is because those were in themselves not righteous acts. Those were to point towards righteous acts or to a lifestyle. They were to direct them. They were a righteous act. They were sacred. But they were designed to help Israel live a righteous life. Um, Also here, um, Israel could keep all of the Levitical feasts and sacrifices, but their daily behavior revealed the true nature of their souls. They could go through this fasting, but what they were doing on a daily, every day in their lives revealed what was in their souls. They were selfish and allowed their lusts to dominate them. That's what we see. Thirdly, they were to judge truthfully in justice, meaning to follow the law and be fair. We've got laws. We want you to follow the law. This was a judge's obligation to decide cases with equity and fairness. Now, I want to go back beyond Micah to Amos. Let's go back to Amos 5.14. Amos is again... Prior to the fall, fall of Jerusalem, and this was Amos, and Amos is actually speaking to Israel, to the northern kingdom. And he says in Amos 5.14, in Amos 5.14, hate evil, love good, love what is right. Establish justice in the gate. And the gate was where the law courts were held. This is where the, all of the, the legal um, 
questions were decided or in the gates of the city. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And of course, he's, he's invoking Joseph because Joseph had been faithful and hopefully God will show favor to them. Okay, uh, back to Zechariah. Point four, Israel, those who are back in the land, well, and before... Uh, the fall as well, fall of Jerusalem, they were to do or practice covenant faithfulness or loving kindness. That is what they were to do. God had shown loving kindness to Israel and Israel was to exhibit the same kindness to each other. This is covenant faithfulness. They were to treat others with consideration and mercy where no obligation existed to do so. That's what mercy is. Exhibiting compassion when there is no requirement to do so. Point five, they were to practice compassion or mercy also towards the helpless. So, five, they were to, they were not to oppress, they were not to oppress the poor. Or point four, I think I missed point four there. No. Yeah, they were to do or practice covenant faithful or loving kindness. Uh, and this was a similar command that James taught in his epistle to the Jews of the Diaspora. Remember, we studied that. They were to show mercy. And uh, the merciless will not be shown mercy, but those who show mercy will be. And then point five here, uh, they were not to oppress, wrong, or extort the widow. And the word here for that uh, refers not merely to a woman who has lost her husband, but also has been left with no means of support. And by the way, this was something that the, um, the Pharisees were continuing to do in the first century. And the Lord, in Matthew 23, uh, confronts them with it, that they were extorting widows. Matter of fact, it's Matthew 23.14. I think we've got time to take a quick look at this. Matthew 23.14. Matthew 23.14. Something very surprising. Who would expect this of the Pharisees who were in their own right very wealthy Matthew 23:14 Woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for you devour widows houses and for a pretense make long prayers therefore you will receive greater condemnation what they were doing is they were foreclosing they they'd come to a widow who may still have a house but she was unable to pay other bills and so they would just foreclose on and kick her out of her house great all right, verse back in Zechariah seven eleven, but they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, and stopped their ears. This is how they act. Uh, they were acting. Um, so then I had another. I had a couple more points there that I almost skipped. Uh, point six was they were not to wrong the orphan, the alien, or the poor. Seventh, evil scheming or unjust calculating was wrong and should not be allowed to enter their minds. Um, 
So evil scheming or unjust calculating was wrong and should not be allowed to enter their minds. Why? Why would this be so important? Because this type of thought and devising fostered evil action. Now this, before we act, we think, or at least we're supposed to. And therefore, if we allow our, our minds to be resentful or bitter or to have malice towards someone and we allow it to fester, sooner or later we're going to act on it. This type of thought and devising fostered evil action. And it was that action that caused divine discipline to fall on them. Therefore, they were told, don't even think this way. Don't allow those mental attitude sins to exist. And then finally, last point here, point 8, is that verses 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10 was God's baseline for behavior. This is how they were supposed to behave. But what we read in verses 11 through 14 was the reality in Israel. This is how they were behaving. And even though they were confronted by the prophets, they didn't make a change in their lives. They didn't correct their lives. Verse 11 begins, and again, this is how they acted prior to the deportation. But it was also how they were starting to act again. Verse 11, But they... Uh, the Jews of the southern kingdom, northern kingdom is already gone, refused to heed, refused to obey, shrugged their shoulders and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. This is rather interesting. Uh, the word for refu- uh, the, re- the word for to, to heed here, refused to heed, the word to heed means to incline their ears. They didn't incline their ears and that's how they described that. Uh, when someone was talking and they were uh, obeying them, uh, the phrase was they inclined their ears. It's in a figure of speech for to obey, to hear, listen, obey. And it says they shrugged their shoulders. In other words, they gave a, uh, a rebellious or a recalcitrant shrug to their shoulders. And it says they stopped or their ears were heavy so they couldn't hear. Again, another figure of speech. Their ears were heavy or they were closed. Closed ears. I love this phrase. They shrugged their, their shoulders. Um, every now and then in our good news clubs, we'll have a child that is... Um, Rebellious, just doesn't want to hear. And we had one a couple of years ago, and it was rather interesting. I could say his name uh, and would be easily recognized. But as a, he was pre-K at the time. Um, he was in one of our one of our teams, and when the adult leader would talk to him, the first thing he would do is do that, just turn his head away. And, well, needless to say, it was a difficult problem. And so the solution was to move him from that team to the green team. And that was my team. Give him to me. Um, well, you know, I, he did the same thing to me when I started to talk to him. Jeffrey. 
I started to talk to him. Well, he looked that way and that's where the door was. So I grabbed his arm and out the door we went. Out the door we went, put him on the floor. Irene was sitting there. Um, she was in her wheelchair. She looked down and said, Oh, I thought he'd join me after a while because she had been in his team, which was the red team at the time. And put him on the floor and said, You're going to stay there until you're ready to come in and, and listen. And he sniffled and cried a little bit. And after about 10 minutes, I came back out and took him back in. The next week, I started to talk to him. Up, outside, bam, right down on the floor again. I probably did it a little too hard. I probably should be in jail at this time. But anyhow, he was on the floor again. And Irene looked at him again and said, Jeffrey, how many times are you going to come out here? Are you going to learn? He cried a little bit. After a while, he was ready to come in. He stopped doing it, though. And uh, he's not the best-minded student that we have, but at least he doesn't turn his head, and he does listen, and he tries. Uh, He's just a rather mischievous child. One, uh, and I can relate to mischievous children. Anyhow... This is in, that's why I mean, when I read this, I see that I, I could see him doing that. You know, only it's uh, the other idea is, and I think you've seen this too. The child is, is doing something wrong. An adult will come and put their hand on their shoulder and they'll wrench it away. Yeah, well, they could do that once, and something should be done about it. But anyhow, now seven. 11 through 14. And we have several points here, but this is important. Um, So, wrenching the shoulder, showing rebellion. Their ears are heavy. They're just not listening. They know it, but they're not listening and they're not obeying. And the word there for hear happens to be Shema. It means that they're not listening. They may listen, they may even hear, but they're not obeying. Um, Now, verse 12 Yes, they make their hearts, and I think here we should see that as souls, because we're using the word heart here not as the organ, but as the core of the individual, the soul. Yes, they make their souls like flint. And this is, again, another figure of speech. It means they're unreceptive. They're unreceptive. Refusing to hear, Shema again, Refusing to hear the law. And this happens to be the Torah. Well, the Torah was to guide them in how they were to live their lives. But what Israel was doing is going through the motions. And and they were not uh, sincere in what they were doing. And the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Now... I'm going to mention this again, but notice here it says, they refused to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent through His Spirit to the former prophets. So we have on the same level here the Torah, the law, and the words of the prophet. They're placed on the same level. And very often in the Jewish world, there is great emphasis placed on the Torah But the rest of the Old Testament is just not quite as important. As a matter of fact, the Sadducees just completely discounted it. But the the entire Old Testament is important. 
Now, um, verse 13, Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed, just as he, just as he called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations, which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned, for they made the pleasant land desolate. All right. Now let's get these points. These are, I think, important. I'll just put them all, all five of the first, the first five up here for you. Uh, the Lord was speaking to the returned exiles through Z about the past history of Israel. He's speaking to the exiles who are in front of him, but he's talking, he's, he's using as an example the pre-exilic Jews who had been in the country when Jerusalem fell. The Lord was speaking to the returned exiles through Zechariah about the past history of Israel. Secondly, the Lord could pour blessing on these Jews as he had done prior to the Babylonian captivity. But unless there's a change of their hearts, their souls, the blessing was going to be unappreciated, ineffective, and wasted. This is what Zechariah is saying. The Lord could pour blessing on these Jews, but he will, but he is, but he is not doing so now, and he will not until they're obedient. So the Lord could pour blessing on these Jews, but he is not, and he will not until they're obedient. The Jews were faithless and disobedient. That's how they're living their lives. Thirdly, the exhortation of verses 9 and 10 was how Israel was to live. That's how they were supposed to live. That was the guidance that they had been given. God's covenant with Israel had not changed. He expected obedience. And we saw that in Micah. Micah was telling them how they were supposed to live. How they could prevent the Babylonian invasion, destruction of Jerusalem and temple, and the captivity. But they didn't. God's covenant with Israel had not changed. He expected obedience. Point four, and Israel had not changed. God had not changed. Israel had not changed. They were focused on the details of life. They were focused on the details of life, not God. God's promise was, obedience, you're blessed. Disobedience, punishment. And that's precisely what had happened to Israel. Point five, the pre-exilic nation had refused to obey. But not from ignorance. They knew what they were supposed to do. So the pre-exilic nation had refused to obey, but not from ignorance. It's not that they did not know what was required, and that they did not know the repercussions for being disobedient. But they simply refused to change their delinquent, 
self-centered lives. They had delinquent, self-centered lives. It's not that they didn't know. It's not that they were ignorant. It's that they were simply not interested. They were living their own lives. Point six, Israel had ignored God. They were faithless. Israel had ignored God. They were faithless. But God is faithful. Even when they are faithless, God is faithful. And he knows what's best. And what was best for them? Discipline. Punishment. Therefore, he brought the consequences for their covenant violations. They had violated the covenant, and God brought the consequences. Point seven here, God had called them to obey, and they did not hear, or they did not obey. I mean, they heard the prophets, but they didn't obey. God called them through the prophets, and they didn't obey. When the consequences arrived, they called, but it was too late. That's what Zechariah is telling them. When the consequences arrived, it was too late. God did not hear until after the punishment had been served. The 70 years in Babylon. And that's every now and then what happens to disobedient children. They're disobedient, they're disobedient, they're disobedient, and finally the hammer falls. And now they cry, but they have a punishment, a sentence that they need to serve. And so they serve it. And when, they're, when they finally get to the point where they're willing to be obedient, then we bring them back. Point eight here, part of the curse for the covenant violation was dispersion. And we can read this. These uh, passages are really, um, really, uh, I think, evident to us. Deuteronomy 4, 27-31, and Deuteronomy 28, 58-64. So part of the curse for covenant violation was dispersion. Deuteronomy, let me read to you Deuteronomy 4.27. Deuteronomy 4.27. This is a great passage. Deuteronomy 4.27 says... We almost have to go back to verse 13, verse 15, where it says, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, Mount Sinai, out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, like the likeness of a male or female. And then he goes on. And then when he gets down to verse 27, when... He, once, he says, if you do these things, this is the result, verse 27. And the Lord will scatter you among the people, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. 
But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart, with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you, in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey His voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, He will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which He swore to them. And then in Deuteronomy 28, that's exactly what happened to them. Deuteronomy 28, verse 58 says, If... Deuteronomy 28.58 If you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear His glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, and serious and prolonged sickness. Moreover, He will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid and they shall cling to you also every sickness and every plague which is not written in this book of the law will the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed you shall be left few in number whereas you were as the stars of the heaven in multitude because you would not obey the voice of your Lord and it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good to do you good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing. And you shall be plucked off of the land which you go to possess. Verse 64, Then the Lord shall scatter you amongst all the people from one end of the earth to the other. This is part of the curse that was promised him. This is the consequences for being disobedient. Uh, 9 says, point 9, back in... Zechariah, all the way back to Zechariah, after Israel was scattered, and because they were no longer in the land, the landscape became appalling. That's what the word desolate means here. The landscape became appalling. No longer a productive possession. The landscape was no longer a productive possession. Point nine. Point 10, the Lord says that they, Israel, had made the land desolate or appalling, which was part of the curse. And we're not going to go back to Deuteronomy 28-23 because I want to finish this and I have just a couple more points. But they, it says Israel, God is the one that provides the rain. And God is the one that prevents the rain. But because of the covenant they were in with God, when Israel was disobedient, they were the cause of it. All they needed to do was be obedient. They were the reason that the land was desolate or appalling because that was part of the curse. That was part of the agreement, the covenant. Israel was the reason for the desolate conditions of the land. The exiles... Return to what? A desolate land. The land was desolate and it laid fallow for 70 years. And now I think this is the, next, the next verse, the last verse here, I think is very telling. The last part of this verse. 
Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned. For they, Israel, made the pleasant land desolate. What was the land like? What are we to believe? Today, we're to believe that Israel was out of the land, and so it was uh, repopulated and um, renationalized by other people. Well, no, it wasn't. The land was desolate. And while there were a few nomads passing through and a few indistinct people, uh, the Samaritans drifted down a little bit, the Edomites drifted up a little bit, but the land remained desolate. Therefore, notice that no other nation filled the void of Israel. No other nation came in there. It was The land was ruled by Babylon and then Persia and then the Greeks, but they didn't pop, repopulate the area. Once Jews was destroyed and the people deported, the land remained desolate. It was appalling. God retained the land for Israel. And by the way, the same is true today. The same is true today. No other people have ever made the land of Israel a prosperous land. Gaza, Samaria, and Judea, where people other than Israel live, are truly still desolate and only survive because of outside support. The UN, other Arab nations, the United States, and Israel supplies water and fruit and electricity to these places. They don't have it on their own. As a matter of fact, the Gaza Strip, which was under the control of Israel for many years, was a very productive place. And with all the the hammering and promises that the Palestinians made, saying that if you give us land, there'll be peace. And so Ariel Sharon gave back the Gaza Strip. And they gave back an area that was very prosperous. There were uh, greenhouses, there were uh, farms that were productive. And in just a, just a few months, they destroyed all that. Why? Because Israel had done it. And they despised it. And today, if Israel was not giving them electricity, they wouldn't have electricity. If Israel wasn't giving them fruit, and if Turkey wasn't sending down supplies to their ports, they wouldn't have anything because they don't produce anything except terrorism. And that's... And Israel supplies them electricity and fruit and other things because if they didn't, they'd be criticized. And they think by doing it, they won't be criticized. But they're still criticized. Twelve, the land was pleasant because God was blessing and prospering Israel. That's why the land was pleasant. It was a pleasant land because it was being blessed. And finally, we'll quit with this one, 13. This was the promised land for Israel, and it will not prosper under any other nation, nor will it ever produce like it did until the millennial state. Israel is making it produce today. No other nation has made that land produce like Israel has. But it's not producing anywhere near to what it's going to produce in the millennial state. And no other nation 
doesn't make any difference who's ever been there has ever been able to make it produce the way that Israel did and it certainly hasn't returned to its previous glory and it only will when we get to the millennial state. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this last verse that talks about the land of Israel. The land became desolate after them. It was only a pleasant land, a delightful land, a prosperous land because you were blessing them in the land. And when Israel is disobedient, they have little rain, little water, and they really have to work hard at production. We're thankful, Father, that it's easy for us to tell that no other nation should have that land. It's the land that has been promised to Israel. It's Israel has really been the only nation in the world to ever truly occupy it. And they are the ones that should occupy it and will occupy it in the future for certain. We pray, Father, that we would take encouragement from this passage, realizing that you can be trusted. You are faithful. And as you are faithful to Israel, you're faithful to us. Uh, We pray, Father, that we'll be obedient, that we will trust you, that we will, Father, therefore benefit from your blessing and not from the consequences of our disobedience. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.